Welcome to today's Ascendo Reliability webinar. This is Fred Shankelberg. And today's topic is um, a little bit of in the line of it's the end of the year and, and uh, the rollover to 2021. Uh, a little bit of um, uh, looking at the best of or some trends, those kind of things. Uh, but I'm more interested in, you know, what's what, what do I see as evolving in reliability engineering? Uh, let's see if I can get my screen to go forward. That's not it, that's not it, there we go. Now, in reliability work, and this is in large part based on my own experience in working with hundreds of different companies and different roles and different uh, uh, tasks that they had, different industries, uh, and also in conversations with many, many other engineers and many other authors and uh, podcast hosts and so on. Um, the basic crux of what we do in the reliability and quality world um, is support. Some, there's a problem, we either work to identify those problems or we're alerted to a particular problem. Um, somebody might walk into your office and say, why did this break? And how can we stop this? And we can call it a problem or an opportunity or an issue or whatever we want, but we tend to deal with uh, something not working the way it should. Um, now, of course, there's lots of ways that can happen uh, and types of requests that we get. And we have a bevy of tools. I've been working recently on cataloging the types of tools and activities and tasks and things that we do to, to solve those problems or to avoid those problems. And we'll talk about both of those in a, in a bit. Uh, this includes the, the stalwart uh, three and four letter acronyms like fault tree analysis and F failure modes and effects analysis and highly accelerated life test and accelerated life test. But it also includes things like computational fluid dynamics and um, finite element analysis and physics of failure. And it spans many different disciplines of engineering. And so we can tap into all kinds of tools. Now, and I'm trying to catalog these tools in a way that makes sense so that you know which tool to pick when you are facing a particular problem. Now, off, if somebody's walking into your office with a smoking broken device that uh, they said, well, why did this fail? Well, hopefully that naturally lends itself to pull out the set of tools that we use to do failure analysis, right? And we have lots of assets available for us, but the, the common approach is a set of tools of, to determine the root cause analysis. And it gives us an understanding uh, that we can then use to answer that question or, or hopefully then use those results to solve that problem that was, we were facing. In, in that process, when somebody asks us, why did this fail? What they're asking for is information. They know it's failed, it's in their hand and, and not working and they, they discovered that. Uh, hopefully it's not a customer, and they're looking for information that will help them understand why did it fail. And then with that information, they're hoping that they can then 
um, change the design, alter the process, uh, discuss it with a vendor, but find a solution for it. So that one, it doesn't happen again, and two, that doesn't happen going forward. Now think about it for a second. Most any request that you get is somebody is looking for information. And we're gonna expand on that in a, in, a, in a little bit. So if you're looking back is a good place to, you know, this isn't a financial advisor type slide, but if we look back over the last year or your career, what has changed in your work? What do you see as different or maybe a trend or maybe an evolution of something going on? All right. So I think I've got this going now. Um, so what do you think? Jump into the chat window. What, what's been different this year? Are you getting more requests, less requests, different kinds of requests? Is your uh, work evolved in some other way? More requests, good, good. Thanks, Ruth. So, and that ties into what I wanted to talk about today is kind of looking forward. And let me see if I can get this to, there we go. Is that there's a number of trends that I've noticed. And, and part of this being able to observe this is because I'm tracking lots of webinars, I'm tracking lots of uh, conferences. Um, still irks me that the Rams conference is going to be live this year. Um, they should should have changed that, but I digress. Uh, but the trend of more and more things happening online, more and more use of Zoom when it's stable, uh, things like that. But there's some other trends that are related to what are, happens in our industry. And part of this getting more requests or, or more detailed requests is another thing that I've seen over this past year and last couple of years is that the importance of reliability is becoming, well, more important. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Now, we've been mass producing and producing large scale projects and products and, and systems, um, you know, since the early, or since really the late 1800s. Now, prior to that, it was usually the local craftsmen that were building things and crafting things and reliability and durability of a product was was built into the craftsman movement because you knew that person that you sold it to, they lived next door. Uh, or the, the quality of your work, the durability of your work was relevantly, it was, it was apparent right away. And, and you would get immediate feedback. But as we started moving into mass production and, and to uh, uh, in industrial scale of building and producing products, that connection from the person that built the item to the person using the item was broken. And the feedback mechanisms have evolved and in some organizations are better than others, but it's getting faster and more uh, uh, financially important uh, and brand important as one, the internet has just made uh, people complaining about a product. It, it used to be said before the, the Yelp and, and the other feedback mechanisms that 
if a person loves your product, they'll tell somebody. If a per person really doesn't like your product, doesn't work for them, they'll tell five people. Well, now it's 500 people. It's the, the multiplier for the negative feedback is, is just amplified to a massive degree. The other thing that's changing is it's no longer Ford saying you can have any color you want as long as it's black is as the auto industry has done over the last century, many markets are doing this now is where you can have a select product just for you. And it, the markets that are being, instead of one product for everybody, it's lots of variations of products for specific targets, markets, really smaller markets. And the reliability in when you go to a smaller market is that the smaller markets tend to talk to each other. I, I ran into this years ago with a medical device company that was selling into home healthcare systems. It was be a prescribed, say an oxygen uh, delivery system or a, a, a blood pressure checking system or some other device that you could get a prescription for and, and it would be installed in your home. Well, there's only so many people that do that service, bring it to your home and set it up and maintain it for you. And they talk to each other. So as the products got more and more service calls, they knew immediately which one was the best product and which one wasn't. And that influenced their purchasing decisions. It's a, a symptom of smaller markets having the ability to, to adjust for their own purposes quickly. And then there's also for a wide range of products, the margins are getting smaller, right? The, so reliability share of that, the warranty cost, for example, becomes a larger portion of that. Now there's all kinds of evidence that warranties and, and failure rates and products are getting lower and lower uh, and products are getting better and better. But some of that might be just accounting. Some of that might be what we consider a failure versus not and so on. Um, because I've also am seeing the trends that we're not getting as much information from our failures as we, as we should. And so the, the importance of reliability is being amplified for a variety of different reasons. And I think these are just a, a few of them. The other piece that hasn't changed all that much, but I'm seeing it impacting reliability is that the, the time that we have available to do fundamental research or to run an accelerated life test or to make sure the process is stable before we ramp um, or even to do due diligence on failure analysis when the line goes down. All of those things are under immense pressure to just move ahead, just get it done, get ship the product, start the line, let's get moving. And that just places, places pressure on our ability to gather the, the data and analyze it so, such that we get appropriate information. And that applies to all kinds of different role, tools and problems that we have to deal with. Another trend I'm seeing, and this one is, you know, we've been doing webinars for years now, but there's 30 or 40 different organizations offering webinars now. 
so that you've got lots and lots of choices. But what, one of the trends I'm seeing over the last number of years is that instead of going to a, a, a master's or a PhD program to become a reliability engineer, which has never been the dominant path, um, or to up your game and, and go back to school, more and more organizations will say, well, you just do it online. And I've heard it from people that say, attending these webinars is part of their professional development or reading the, the blogs that we offer through Ascendo is part of their professional development, helps them stay abreast of what's new or upcoming or, or introduce them to new concepts and ideas or to refresh ones that they, they've learned and forgotten about in the past. But our ability to, you know, and I'm going back to a story some of you have probably heard is when I first got a request, my boss walked in and says, how long will this product last in the field? And I had a good month of just learning. I, got, I went to a conference, I met some experts in the field, I bought some books, I did into the library and did a bunch of research, I talked to a bunch of scientists and understood what it was I was trying to do as I set up my first accelerated life test. But I had a good month, six weeks to learn just how to do what I was asked to do. Today, it's, well, just Google it and find something good enough and, and, and give me an answer. We don't have, one trend that I'm seeing is that we can learn what we need to know much quicker. Right? I was writing handwritten letters back in the day and getting on the phone and making random calls to people to see who I should be talking to. Today, we can Google it or we can get on a discussion forum or we can post on LinkedIn and we can get all kinds of answers, which is wonderful. It's accelerating our ability to find answers to questions we may have, but it also puts an immense pressure on finding something and just move forward. And part of this time pressure piece of it is that we also don't get a chance to sit back at the end of the week or the month or the year and say, well, what worked and what didn't work? What did I not quite get right so that I can learn from that and move forward? But it also applies to our ability to learn from failures. It's, there's so much pressure to just get it going again or just get the shipment out that we don't sit back and learn from what's not working, whether it's a prototype failure or the market adoption wasn't high enough. We often list a, you know, a, a phased review of feedback and look back, but it often is a celebration with some pizza and we don't really take anything away from that and actually ask the hard questions. And part of that is this emphasis on looking forward all the time and moving forward and just knocking down problems in front of us as quick as we can, but not really getting better at what we do. Now, sometimes we don't have to, to learn from experience. You actually have to take time to learn from it um, is kind of my point. So we got these trends that are pushing reliability to be just that much more important, but we have these counter trends that are impeding it. And so that's a concern of mine, right? Now, we all know about the COVID-19 and stay at home and people working at home. That's one challenge we face this year. But what 
what other challenges more related to reliability, uh, maybe some of these counter trends or things like that that you're seeing that are, are impacting you? Being laid off. Now, that would be a new challenge. That's definitely a challenge. Sorry to hear that. Um, I remember when I got laid off um, years and years ago, um, it was right about this time of year. It was just before Thanksgiving, actually, and in late November in the States. And um, somebody told me when I was, you know, kind of going, now what do I do? Uh, said, this will probably be one of the best things that ever happened to you. And I was, that was really hard to imagine at the time. Um, but I got my resumes out there, got some, you know, uh, information out there, work the network and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what I did is I recognized where I was good at what I did and was quickly able to find in, uh, meaningful work. And in that accelerated my ability to learn what I was doing. Now I got lucky, I suspect, um, in timing and all kinds of other reasons. Um, but you're exactly right, Andre, with the, you know, with salary cuts or, or with less funding for programs within your, your, your projects. Um, yeah, we have to be creative. We have to take the situation as it presents itself, the challenge that we're facing and adapt and move forward. And, and I, I don't know, is it a Ben Franklin saying that the uh, necessity is the mother of invention or something like that or innovation? But the idea is that we are always gonna be facing challenges and the challenges that we face are gonna to continue to evolve and change and the environment of which we're working in is gonna continue to evolve and change. And in part, it's why I really like reliability engineering is because somebody invents a new material or a new design concept all the time. There's always new markets all the time. I can't wait until we get landed on Mars and have to uh, create products that work there and work in the transit to there. That's a whole new environment for a lot of our, our products for everyday products. So if we put a, a, a large base uh, on the moon or in orbit, again, different environments, different challenges. Um, I wonder what moon dust will do to electronics, um, how well that'll work. Uh, I don't think cooling is gonna be too much of an issue. We can probably cool things pretty quickly. Um, but there are still challenges. And there's a lot that's out there that we can learn from, but uh, it just illustrates that we're constantly gonna be having challenges. So for those with salary cuts and less funding and getting laid off, um, best of luck to you, best wishes, you know, uh, drop me a line to let me know what you're looking for. And, and uh, although lately I've not heard of about very many openings, um, every now and then I do. And so I'll, I'll keep you in mind. All right. Now, we also have challenges on information. Now, let's dive into that a little bit. So just doing a task, just doing an FMEA, or just running an environmental test is often just busy work. If, if the idea is just to do reliability because we're doing a bunch of tasks, well, you know as well as I do is that that's not really, well, one, satisfying, but two, it doesn't really make any difference. 
if you walk in with results from a late stage test on prototype saying, hey, we've got this issue with this, we need to figure out what it is and if it's gonna affect all of our products and cause field failures early, the natural feedback we get is, well, that's too little information and it's unclear and it's too late, we're gonna ship anyway and we'll hope for the best. Now, I've been in that situation and I went back to the drawing board basically and said, well, here's the details, here's the failure analysis and here's the analysis of that this is built in, this is gonna affect 25 or 30% of our products and here's the cost that's gonna happen. So that was beyond the task. The task was go run this environmental test, see if it works at altitude, for example. Well, they didn't. And a large part of our market was at altitude. And so it was gonna be a problem. And I was able to convince folks enough to, to look into it enough to, to deal with it and avoid the problem in the field. But that is always a difficult conversation. And just the results that we had uh, two failures in our environmental test of five units, it's easy enough to dismiss because other priorities are taking precedent. We've got marketing lined up, we've got manufacturing lined up, we got the supply chain all lined up. We don't have time for this, we got to ship. Unfortunately, that happens way too often. Now, one of them I got a call a couple months ago Somebody said, hey, can you do an FMEA for us? I says, no, I can't do it for you. You need to do it with your team. I can facilitate it for you. He goes, no, no, we don't have time for that. We have, we just need, in this contract we have, they want us to do an FMEA. We don't have time for that. Can you just do it for us so that it meets their requirement that it's done? I was like, oh, okay, no, I mean, I'm going to hand, I'm not going to do that. It's not useful for you. It's not useful for your customer. It's not useful for whoever's going to end up using this product. Really? You're going to outsource something that is meant to provide you and your team input to improve your product and you're just going to pencil whip it? No, I'm not going to do that. So part of doing a task is not just to write the report. And I've seen it done so many times. It's frustrating. It's part of the task is to actually create some information. You know that. And so always look beyond what the task is. Who's getting these results? Why are they need, why do they need this? What is the purpose of this test or this activity or this uh, procedure? And, and start pushing beyond where does it you know, I know I need to get to the lab. I need these three chambers. I need this data acquisition system, la da 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 da. But so what? At least ask that question. Where does this info go? The other piece that we're getting is that if we're just our, our ability to respond to problems um, is, is we're just not fast enough, right? It takes time to understand failure analysis. So it goes back to this time pressure piece, but it also goes back to the, the lack of ability to learn is we get pushed so hard to respond to failures that I've run into organizations and I hope you're not in one of them that says, let's run all of our tests so that they pass. Let's just run to pass. Let's do the minimum sample size 
and design it such that if it's in spec and it works for some number of hours, we're gonna call it a success and move on. Now there's all kinds of issues with that approach. And it, the biggest part is that we don't learn much of anything in that approach. Now, if your organization doesn't want to learn from failures, well, that's a perfect approach. Your customers will tell you what's working and not working, and they're not going to be shy about it. And they're either going to be sending it back to you and demanding uh, redress, or they're going to another solution. So our ability to respond to failures is getting pushed. And so it's a, a, one of these negative trends. Now I've heard in great many organizations that, oh, we need to be proactive, right? We need to get ahead of this. In the maintenance world, we call it predictive maintenance or preventative maintenance or proactive maintenance, lots of P's and maintenance and stuff like that. But in design for reliability, we're trying to get ahead of this to avoid failures. The issue is, is that for any given item or system, there's literally thousands of ways it could fail, right? Even simple products have many one, many of them have very low probability of occurring, yet there's lots of potential issues. If you have a simple circuit board that has a hundred components on it and every component has two to three different ways it can fail, uh, likely failures already were in the hundreds. Now it's not really possible for us to, to solve every single one of those, yet to make a reliable product, you do. And so just thinking about it or just saying you're proactive without actually changing anything and organizing that information is not really being proactive. And we have to be very deliberate about sorting out the, that decision that needs to be made as to what do we need to solve? What do we need to fix? What do we need to improve in order to improve our product's performance? And so the, it's easy to get overwhelmed. There's a lot of potential information out there. And so it's a, another one of these negative trends, All right? So let me switch gears a little bit instead of doom and gloom here for including a, a computer reboot. Um, let's talk about well, what can we do to go after this? So let's say you're in a, a new project and you're developing a new WYSIWYG uh, widget kind of thing. And you're the reliability or quality professional assigned or, or working with this program. So here's, I mean, on the screen, I have a few questions that you can ask. But basically, there's almost always a structure to product development. Um, we call it a life cycle, or we call it a phase gate review process, or there's usually a project manager or project lead, or there's some senior managers that's a, um, what do they call it, uh, advisory committee or, some, you know, whatever. There's lots and lots of variations of it, but they all generally have this idea that you go from concept to production and then eventually retirement. Um, but there's usually this evolving set of milestones that are in there. Now, milestones are great on paper and way too many of these documents are written uh, by some academic someplace in passive tense. So that what, what 
why that's a problem is, well, who's making the decisions, right? So I'm getting to the milestone. Uh, one of my favorite organizations named it after it was called the, it was Bronze Age or Stone Age, Iron Age, Bronze Age, Steel Age. I think they had a titanium one in there somewhere. Um, kind of the evolution of, of metals and tools making capability. But the idea was, is that they were coming up to one of their stages and it was written in passive tense. So I'm sitting there looking at it going, well, you kind of vaguely talk about it. We have to hit these milestones for setting a goal. And do we have evidence that we have achieved this goal? So let's say it was supposed to be reliable and we've done some work to measure the reliability of some critical parts, built a model. Well, who, who needs this information? Do we just bring it on a slide at the, at the phase gate review and present it and say, hey, we have a problem or we don't have a problem? Or is the purpose for somebody to actually make a decision, is that warrant us staying in this stage and doing some more work or, or is that good enough when we move forward? But who is that person? What, what team needs to know this information so that, that they can make the appropriate decision. And so part of the, a new project program is, well, who needs to know what, when? Uh, and so does an electrical engineer need to know what the derating guidelines are and the, and the troublesome supplied components that we've had in the past are so we can avoid using those or use them in a different way? and how to design and select components so that they're robust right from the start. Uh, is there anything brand new in the product that is a new technology to us? We don't have experience with it. Well, that may suggest that we need to learn how does it fail? How does it work and not work? And that should naturally in, involve what we would all probably chime in as a halt test or a halt or some origin testing or some exploratory work to figure out, well, what are the failure mechanisms and what kinds of stresses cause problems here? But throughout a new project, there's a lot of people have to make decisions to actually create this new item or WYSIWYG. Well, what decisions are being made and what information do they need in order to make a good decision? We'll come back to that in a moment. So let's say we're looking at a new supplier. Um, I know, I suspect many of you have either actually visited suppliers and gotten the, uh, the power death by PowerPoint in the morning with some stale donuts and then taken out to lunch. And eventually you get to actually see the line and do some technical work. But let's say you have to decide which supplier to use, right? What do you do? to deal with a new supplier. Uh, one of my favorites that ruled them out almost immediately was I asked a, uh, it was a um, uh, IC uh, fab, uh, our, our vendor that was providing a logic circuit or a, a, a integrated circuit for our new design. And I asked him, so how does your product fail? And he says, well, it doesn't fail. So, What's the most likely way it's going to fail? Well, it's just not going to fail. Do you know how we're going to use your product? No, I don't, it doesn't matter. It won't fail. And he just was going to stay on that track all the way through. I said, all right, 
do you guys actually design your product with margins or no, 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 we don't over design it at all. We do this, that, and they talked about all these kinds of standard tests that were all tested to pass. And I said, what does that stress actually do to your product such that it's meaningful? And he couldn't answer those. So they had a checklist of things they did and a sales engineer that really believed their product never failed. Well, we went to another supplier and they said, ah, in your application, you're a little bit on the hot side. We're gonna see this, this, and this, this diffuses over here, and it may cause issues with this, this, and this. And, and here's how you can mitigate that. A completely different decision or, or a discussion with the other supplier. Now, it's not always that night and black and white or night and day. It's often though that we need to make a decision on which supplier to include into our product that provides one or more components for us. But the idea is, is that we would also, it's not based on where they take us to lunch. It's not based on how many can they make. It's not based on only can they deliver it on time. Is it the right functionality for our product? Those are all important factors, but all of those are mute if it doesn't work, right? And even if it doesn't work at a 1% level in some product lines, that's a disaster. And so I suggest that when it's a new supplier or we're choosing which components and which suppliers that we're gonna build into our supply chain, well, that's a reliability part. And it again is recognizing that we're gonna make a decision. Well, who is making that decision? And what information do they need, do they need such that they can make an informed decision? All right? We get requests, right? All the time. My very first request was, will this work in the field? Will this work for 20 years? I'm like, okay, well, that one was easy. That was my boss. He was making the request and I was standing there and he was asking me, I was the uh, request E, I guess is the appropriate term for that. So I was receiving it. The request was very specific. Will this new product work for 20 years in its expected application? And we knew what that application was. So it was pretty specific and I had a target and I, I needed to, uh, update that a little bit as well. How close do you need to be, right? How accurate does the, the testing need to be to answer that question for you? And he says, well, I want to be 90% confident the lower bound of the reliability estimate is at least 20 years. Okay, well, I can deal with that. So we set off to design a test that would help us answer that question. And then I asked, you know, naively I asked, so I, do I get to go to Northern Italy where this is gonna be installed for 20 years to see if it works? And he goes, of course not. I need an answer in six months, right? And so that started the clock and that was tied to a business deadline. Of the customer was gonna be asking, is it gonna work in our application? And what is your evidence? They asked those questions of us. And so my boss was saying, well, we need to run an experiment that answers that question. And we have a deadline, we have a timeline for the decision to build this product into their system. And then it was, it was left a little ambiguous in the request I got, but what's the level of completeness? And it, 
in this particular case, this one was the best you can. With the given amount of time, we know that there's trade-offs, but we need to know, do we have evidence that it will work or not work? Which, so we need to separate it one way or the other. And as the experiment evolved and as we started to get closer to results, we started to look at, well, what's the level of completeness? What qualified as a sufficient answer for the supply for the uh, purchaser's uh, request. This is part of making a complete request. Whether you're making the request or receiving the request, you should have at least these five elements. In some uh, areas that they may add, well, are you, do you have the capability of meeting, of responding to this request? And, and there might be two or three other elements to it, but these are the five elements of a complete request. So as you receive a request, don't, fit, don't stop until you understand all five elements, including the level of completeness. Do you need a presentation? Do you need a report? Does this need to be PhD thesis level or do you need back of the envelope? What's the quality level of the results that is sufficient to meet this request? And so that's, that's one approach to, to going after this thing. Now, this, this might be a rhetorical question, you know, what's the goal of our work? But the idea here is I'm trying to paint the picture that our goal is not just to knock off the task, not just to do a failure analysis, but nobody looks at it or run a halt and write a beautiful report with glorious photographs of all the failure mechanisms and then nobody uses it. Our goal is to make a difference and many of you already know this, you've, you've been listening to these podcasts over the years and, and staying in the professional development world. But part of our work and part of our education is that our work makes a difference. It alters the design, it alters the processes we use such that our customers end up with a durable, reliable product or system. We improve availability. Our we make a financial difference in our organizations and quality of life for our customers. They get something that just works. So our goal is not just to do a task. It, unfortunately, in some organizations that's where we're bounded, but it doesn't have to be. So here's what I think is coming up for us in reliability. And as I thought through this in preparation for here, it made me go back to the maturity matrix that was um, the first one I really saw that was related to what we did in reliability work was by um, uh, Crosby. And I'm drawing a blank on his first name um, in the book called Quality is Free. And he explains the quality maturity matrix, which I have adopted when I was at Hewlett Packard into a reliability maturity matrix. And there's actually a IEEE standard that incorporates a maturity matrix uh, relating to electronics reliability, very, very similar to the Crosby one. And there's dozens of other maturity matrices out there. But the basic idea of the maturity matrix is that it's, what kinds of decisions are we making in our organization? And as an example from, from the reliability maturity matrix at level one, which is the least mature, 
the decisions are, we just don't do them. We don't worry about reliability because it will, it will be what it is. And most of the time it's the customers abusing our products anyway. So it's, it's always their fault. We don't make decisions. We have decided as an organization not to worry about reliability, not to make decisions related to it because it doesn't matter. Now that is actually a decision, right? That that organization is, is consciously or unconsciously making. Now level three is a, the nature of a level three maturity um, organization is they do lots and lots of stuff. They do FMEAs regularly, they do HALT on every program, they run environmental tests, they run stress testing, they do derating, and they do stress strength calculations, they do finite element analysis, they do design of experiments, they do hypothesis testing, they do uh, assessments of their vendors, on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Oftentimes they're doing so many things that they do very few things well. And they do so many things that they have such immense amounts of information of which most of it really doesn't matter because they're not taking the time to decide, well, what, what tasks do we need to do that actually add value to us? And it, it's a decision to say, well, we're going to do everything we did last time, plus two more projects, two more tasks. And then the next program, well, we don't have time to design a program. So we're gonna do everything we did last time plus two more to account for the things that slipped through last time. Now, if that sounds familiar, you're probably this level two, level three type organization where there's, there's a lot of activity, but there's not a lot of connection to where the decisions are made. And so there's a conscious decision to do things but there's also most often an unconscious decision to not use them. And so that's one level of decision-making. And there's usually pockets of somebody doing something really well in those organizations and other areas where it's just overwhelming, we don't do anything effectively. In a proactive organization, levels four and five, is they switch this decision-making at the cultural level to what do we need to know in order to make that decision? So as we look ahead at our program or our production line or our supply chain, what do we need to know in order to make a good decision? So what decisions are coming up and how do we get ahead of that? It's the way we approach the detailed decision-making is one from ignore it completely to gather everything and hope some of it actually works to let's be deliberate about focusing in on those few critical decisions and improve the ability of us to make a, the right decision to ship or not to ship this product, for example, is right out of the maturity matrix. So that's where I started this, this thought process. Now, if we make a good decision if we make it correct, right? If we are like my boss was responding to a customer request, will this product last for 20 years in this application? If they make the right decision, it could be that they buy our product because they believe it and have evidence of that it will work. 
they've made the correct decision and they bought the product and it worked. Now, conversely, the correct decision might be, no, we're not going to buy your product because it doesn't last for 20 years. That is also the correct decision because they avoid the, the, the downside of the product not working as long as they thought it would be. And you can see where there's a financial connection to this. What's the cost per failure? And if that failure is too costly or too often and, and thus costly, the correct decision is not to use it, not to go that way, not use that solution. So it's contingent on how well do we know how well, how long will it work? Now, of course, there's other factors that are involved in selecting a product. If it's not available, that's a key factor. If it's not a, enough volume available, that's a factor. And what's the cost? And that's a factor. And on and on and on. But reliability often is one of those pieces that we have vague information oftentimes. So if having better information improves the ability to decide correctly, that creates value. That allows us to be right more often. Now, if we, you know, so the whole idea of making a decision is that we're trying to, to um, do the trade-off and the balance and the cost benefits and all these other things such that we get a functional product that meets our customers' expectations and works for the expected duration in their environment. If that works, we all win. Customer gets the value of the solution. We get the value of the sale and of brand recognition and so on, but it's contingent on thousands of decisions. And so setting up a structure that enables people to make better decisions leads to increased value all the way through the process. All right. Now, how do we influence decisions? It's if we've got the right information. So some of this involves setting up a structure like a design for reliability guidelines, or here's our understanding and catalogs of the environments that we're going into. And when it changes, we evolve that and improve it. If it's a phase gate process, what information is really necessary during those phases such that we, the team that is making decisions can make better decisions? So sometimes it involves, well, what's the objective? What's our goal here? And sometimes it involves, well, how close to this goal are we? What have we learned from the failures or for the research or from the characterization work that we've been doing? How does that influence what materials we use? What uh, types of support structures we put into it? Do we make it repairable or not repairable? And so on and so on. The idea here is that if we provide the appropriate information and guidance to structuring that information for decision-making, when that decision needs to be made, we all are more likely to make the right decision, the correct decision. So sometimes it's, you can do that ahead of time. We can learn from past programs. We can create lessons learned. We can create guidelines and, and, and uh, routines and structure to help frame decisions. We can help people ask the right questions. How does this fail? How do you know? How do we analyze the data that you have? How do you set up and create a, an 
an experiment that actually gives you information. This is not new knowledge of how to do that, but it's often overlooked when I need to pick supplier A or B. And what's the impact of this? So let's, when it's important, when it makes a difference, let's get the right information then. The other part besides the getting ahead of this and creating structures is recognizing when we have uncertainty, when we just don't know. And I've commonly heard this in, and have called it the red flags. It's a new vendor, it's a new location, it's a new customer, it's a new environment, it's a new something. That almost always sends shivers up my spine of going, this is cool, we get to go learn something now, right? We need to go figure out the information related to all of those elements. And so the idea here is once we know what those decisions are, the big ones and the small ones, we can structure information and guidance to getting that information or helping to identify which ones we need to go solve to peel back the uncertainty around so that we have the appropriate information to improve those decisions. So that wraps up uh, my biggest point here, but you know, in general, instead of looking at what challenges you have, I'm suggesting is take a look at what decisions you need to make. And are you working, you know, are you taking on the tasks that are going to help influence those decisions such that they are made when they're well-informed? I think I misspelled decisions there. So I'm gonna move off of that slide. So, um, oh, good question. And I was just gonna ask for questions. Um, importance of confidence bounds. Um, confidence is one of those words in statistics that has a, a very different meaning than what we use in normal conversation. Um, if some, if you're rec making a recommendation and some, somebody asks you, are you confident in that recommendation? Are they asking for a confidence interval or bound or something like that? Or are they saying you as an engineer, what is your, um, engineering judgment? What's your gut say is appropriate here? Are you sure would be another way to phrase that all too often. People confuse, are you sure, which is I did the right experiment and I have the right information and I have the understanding that it's a sufficient level for me to say, yes, that's a good solution with, I did a sample uh, of testing. I did 10 samples, for example, and I have 90% confident that the result that I got is reasonably close to what the unknown actual result is. Right now, that confidence is the relationship between the sample and the population, which is different than did I do the right experiment? Did, do I understand it well enough to be confident, to be sure? So, part of me is that confidence bounds are a crux all too often and all too often misunderstood. So, it's if you're making a comparison and you're checking the difference between two mean results that you have, the, the, the uh, average results or median results, 
Well, then hypothesis tests and confidence intervals and those kind of things is a great tool to say, well, there is a statistical difference between these two. But when you present that result, it really should include the understanding that you were actually measuring the right thing with sufficiently low measurement error and that it was the important aspect of what is different between these two vendor solutions that matters, which has nothing to do with confidence bounds. Um, it's due diligence to, to understand when you're doing a sample, is it representative? But it also is irresponsible to say that the confidence bounds signal that you have the right experiment. So kind of a long-winded answer. Hopefully that answers it for you or gives you an idea what I, what I think of it as. Um, decisions guided only by statistical confidence are fraught with an over-reliance on what could be very misleading. So it's something to be very careful about. All right. So as you know, uh, ascendoreliability.com has all kinds of cool information and stuff. The, the recording of this, uh, hopefully it pieces together um, uh, and hopefully it's still recording. Um, we'll all show up uh, in a couple of days on the site. If you have any other questions or any other comments or stuff, please let me know. As always, you can find us through Ascend Over Liability um, in our about pages. There's lots of contact forms there. I see all of those. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn. So with that, I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. If uh, so, so many different uh, uh, transitions and holidays and all kinds of good stuff going on this time of year. So we're going to be back in early June, January with another webinar. And I know Chris Jackson's going to be back on near the end of the month. Um, so hopefully everybody stays safe as, and enjoy the season. And uh, we'll be in touch. We'll talk to you again in about a month.